0: What is an African American interpretation of Paul? Dr. Lisa Bowens is Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary and author of the book, African American Readings of Paul Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. In this episode, Sushama Austin connor talks with Dr. Bowens about this groundbreaking work in New Testament studies. Dr. Bowens begins with the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother and her discomfort with certain readings of Paul particularly the preaching of Paul that states that slaves must obey their masters. This story led to Bowens' interest in researching the complex history between Paul's teachings and Christianity's relationship and complicity in racism and slavery. In this conversation, Dr. Bowens highlights how, despite this complex history, African Americans have still interpreted Paul's letters to protest and resist oppression. She speaks at length about several of the African-American interpreters surveyed in her book, including Harriet Jacobs, the first African-American to write her autobiography, and Lemuel Haynes, the first ordained African-American in the United States. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary.
1: All right, Dr. Bowens, I'm so excited to be with you this afternoon for our interview for the distillery on your newest book. I wanted to start with just a general idea of this topic, like why this topic? What was so important about it for you?
2: Yeah, so um, a couple of things were happening simultaneously that brought about this project. So. When I was working on my dissertation, um, my dissertation was on 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's ascent to the third heaven. And when I was working on that, I wanted to include in that project a chapter on how African Americans have interpreted that particular passage in Paul. And so I was in conversation with my doctor father at the time, and he suggested that I do that as a separate project. And so while we were having those type of conversations, I was also attending different conferences and at these conferences, people were lifting up the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother as the way African-Americans interpreted Paul. And so I kept hearing that over and over and I thought, is that really true? Is that really the case? So to make a long story short, the conversation I had with my doctor father and my attending these conferences and hearing the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother as the way African Americans interpreted Paul kind of converged for me. And so I said, well, let me not just concentrate on 2 Corinthians 12. Let me just do an investigation and just see how have African Americans interpreted Paul overall. So those kind of those two topics just kind of merged and I just expanded um, my focus on Paul and African Americans' interpretation of Paul. So that's how this project came about. And it's been an interesting informative journey for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I want to get to the journey, and I want to get to Howard Thurman's um, the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother and how that relates to how African Americans look at, at Paul. So you have an idea like this. How do you get to start researching? Where do you start? What are, what are kind of the key milestones to even get started? How, where do you know to look?
2: Yeah. So one of the things that happened, I was in conversations with different scholars about my project at the time when I was just focusing on 2 Corinthians 12. And. Different people started recommending, oh, you should read this person. You should look here. And so once, one of the things that's interesting about research is once you look at a source or two, those sources will lead you to other sources. And so one of the first sources I looked at was God Struck Me Dead, a, a very important volume in which you, um, the readers are presented with conversion stories of um, enslaved Africans. And so, reading those stories really um, got me to thinking and just how powerful these uh, narratives were. Um, These African American uh, people were just talking about these amazing divine encounters with God. And so, you know, reading that volume, looking through those narratives led me to this anthology of narratives um, edited by Yuval Taylor, I Was Born a Slave. It's a couple of volumes, huge volumes, where the editor has compiled autobiographies um, of enslaved persons. And so looking and reading through those narratives, which were powerful, but also very difficult to read, you very candid in what they experienced in, in slavery, but also very candid about their own divine encounters with God and um, what was preached to them by white enslavers and how they, um, these African-Americans, interpreted scripture for themselves. So, And reading those narratives kind of led me to other um, sources as well. Um, sources, Sisters in the Spirit, mm-hmm. uh, edited by William Andrews, the autobiographies of Jerina Lee and Julia Foote and Zilpha Elah. So it's kind of like once you start that path, different um, other sources come up. And so I was very fortunate to be in conversation with great scholars who um, recommended readings. But also just once you start reading again, you just it leads you to other sources as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for something of this magnitude, are you traveling a lot? Is it, I'm assuming it's a post, I mean, a pre-COVID research.
2: Right. Yeah. 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 So I've been working on this for quite some time. So I started working on that chapter, like for my dissertation, like back in 2014 and finished the manuscript. I think I finished it in 16, 17, around that time. Um, And then, you know, did some editing afterward. But yeah, so it took me a while to kind of go through the material, read the narratives. Um, And one of the things that was really interesting about this whole process is that once I started, it became clear to me that there was no way I was going to be able to include all of what I wanted to include. Because originally the project was I wanted to focus on how have African-Americans interpreted Paul from the 1700s all the way to the present. And that just, it just became clear that this is not, but, I, I would not be I able bet. to do that. Right. I bet. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up stopping um, mid 20th century with the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, stopping there, I ended up not including all of the interpreters that could have been included um, It was just too many. But I think that's a great problem to have. (laughs) And so, you know, one of the things I hope that this work does is spur interest in this topic and that other researchers, writers, scholars will be interested in doing more research in this area because I think it's a fruitful area um, that needs to be explored, not only because it helps us to understand you know, Christianity's relationship with racism and slavery, but also the legacy, the great legacy of these African-American interpreters who have gone before us and how they have utilized scripture to protest and resist racism, white supremacy. And there's such a rich legacy and a rich heritage that I think needs to continually be uncovered and revealed. I like to call these figures hidden figures. Mm-hmm. Um, Because I think, you know, some of them are well-known, but many of them are not well-known. And so I think their voices are so important and they need to be heard. Mm -hmm.
1: And I actually, one of my questions for you is about some of the individual interpreters that you talk about. And we can talk about that in a sec, but give us the, the context. Talk to us about Howard Thurman's grandmother and that important story, and then about generally How do African-American congregants and people and religious scholars look at Paul?
2: Yeah, so the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother is really a powerful story. Um, So Howard Thurman was a prominent civil rights leader, um, activist, theologian um, of the 20th century, just a really profound scholar um, in his own right. And in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he tells the story of his grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, who was um, born a slave. And, um, you know, once she was emancipated, um, Howard Thurman, her her grandson, would often read to her because she never learned to read or write. And, and, And the way he tells the story is just so powerful. He talks about how she was always very particular about which scriptures she wanted him to read. And he noticed that you know, she would have particular portions of scripture for him to read to her, but nothing from Paul except, from, except for 1 Corinthians 13. And so he says one day he gets up the courage to ask her why. And she tells him that um, when she was an enslaved person, the white minister would always preach from Paul, slaves obey your master. And she said, mm-hmm. she told him that she promised herself that if she ever became free, she would never read that part of scripture ever again. And so it's a really powerful story in so many ways, because it first of all, it tells us how scripture was used and preached to enslaved persons to justice, to try to justify their enslavement. But it also shows um, gives a glimpse into this complicated relationship that African-Americans have had with the Apostle Paul because of how he was used and how he was preached to them. And so um, this story becomes an important part of um, illuminating that relationship. And what I try to do in my book is to show that, yes, that is an important part of the relationship between African-Americans and Paul. But there are also other voices too. I embarked on this research journey. I wasn't quite sure what I would find, if I would find that there were many African Americans who followed Nancy Ambrose and really kind of rejecting Paul in some sense. Um, but one of the things that was really surprising to me was that for the most part, African Americans really gravitated toward. Paul in their writings, in their autobiographies, in their sermons, in their speeches. And they actually utilized him to argue for their freedom, to argue for justice, to argue for their own humanity. And I think that's one of the surprising, um, and I think one of the gifts that these interpreters leave us, I think, um, in seeing how scripture can be used and really does um, provide resources for the struggle for justice.
1: Can you talk to me and talk to our listeners about th- just calling them interpreters and what that means um so the the all of the interpreters that you talk about in in your book who who are interpreters? why are we calling them interpreters?
2: That's a really good question I guess. <laughs> I don't call them interpreters because <laughs> it's a, yeah. So I, also, I call them interpreters and I also call them hermeneutes in the book. Yes. Yeah, you do. Um, so I call them that because they are reading scripture, but they are analyzing it in a way that speaks to their own context, to their own situation. And they are using their agency to go against what the other interpretations of Paul they're hearing mm-hmm. right so um, their hermeneutics, their interpretation, their interpretive posture, the way they're reading, analyzing scripture all of that is so important because it shows that these African Americans do not rely upon white interpretations of scripture. Mm -hmm. They are utilizing their own agency. Um, I like to use the phrase that Brad Braxton uses. They are seizing hermeneutical control Mm -hmm. of scripture. And they are um, saying, we are not objects at which scripture is directed toward us. Mm-hmm. but we are subjects in which we have agency by the spirit of God to interpret scripture for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, that's why I call them interpreters.
1: Dr. Bowens, can you talk some more about African Americans connection to Paul and to the scripture?
2: Yeah. So I think, um, one of the things you see in the book is that African-Americans connected to Paul in so many different ways. Um, some of them connected to him through the idea of shared suffering.
0: Mm.
2: Paul often talks in his letters about the things he endures for the sake of the gospel. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, he gives this litany of sufferings. So he He's shipwrecked. He's stoned. He he just suffers so many things because of the gospel that he proclaims. And so you have African American um, some African American interpreters gravitate toward him because they see in him a companion, a a shared co-sufferer, someone who shares their suffering. And so you will often see in some of their writings how they talk about their sufferings and they um, see Paul as a kin. Has a, they have a kinship relationship with him. Um, others in, um, share experiences with Paul in terms of his mystical encounters. Mm. Um, earlier, we talked about his travel to the third heaven, that ascent episode in, in 2 Corinthians 12. And so a number of these interpreters in their um, stories talk about these profound encounters they have with God and the language they use to describe them is often the language Paul uses to describe his own experience. Mm -hmm. Going to the third heaven, um, having angels appear to them. And so they gravitate to Paul in that sense that their divine encounters with God in many ways mirror or reflect Paul's own encounter um, with God. The other thing I would say in terms of how they relate to Paul They pick up on his, um, what I call apocalyptic or cosmic sensibilities. This idea that sin is not just something that's personal, but sin is something that's cosmic, that it's a power and it affects structures and systems. And so you'll often see in in these interpreters, some of them who gravitate towards this sensibility in Paul, they talk about sin as not just something personal, Mm -hmm. but as something that affects societies, that affects systems and structures, and that salvation then is not just about the individual, but salvation is also cosmic. And so I think um, for some of these interpreters, they pick up on these apocalyptic elements of Paul. And um, use them to talk about their own experiences with God and what they see happening in their own context in terms of racial injustice
0: mm-hmm.
2: and how evil is not just about being inside the body, or, but it's about the outside oppressive um, forces that affect the body. So, yeah, th- there are a number of ways um, that these African-American interpreters, yeah, gravitate toward Paul and find mm-hmm. his voice to be important for their own voices. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And it feels and sounds like that suffering and trying to make some meaning making out of suffering is a big, big part of it. yeah. Would that be something that you think interpreters through the ages, this meaning making was about making meaning of their own suffering and looking at Paul's
2: suffering in order to do that? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's a sense of. So I think one of the things I try to do in the book is to show the importance of the context Mm -hmm. to these interpreters interpretation. So. Their context oftentimes are really horrendous contexts mm-hmm. in which they are suffering mentally. They are suffering in their bodies. And they're also being tormented spiritually in the sense that they are being told consistently that they have no God. Mm. That God did not create them. And they're consistently being told that they're not human. and so. Their suffering is taking place on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons I think these divine encounters that they have are so important is because they, these divine encounters counter what they're hearing, yeah, yeah, what they're being preached to or how they're being preached to. It's, it's countering all of this um, dehumanization that they're facing on so many levels. And so these divine encounters they have with God and the Holy Spirit affirm their humanity, affirm that they are important. They have value. They are significant. That, um, and so many of them talk about being called to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so when they're called to preach the gospel, they're, they're able to understand their own suffering in the sense of how Paul suffered for sharing the gospel. So they're able to make this link um, between their suffering and Paul's suffering. And in a sense, understand that it's, I think for us in in modernity, it may be kind of hard for us to get that part, but they're able to make sense of it in a sense that I'm suffering, but even at the same time I'm suffering, my body has value. Hmm. Like I am significant to God. God loves me. I am human. Uh, y- you know, and so I think for them, Paul becomes this kinship figure who kind of understands them and they understand him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. It, it, the link is interesting because you could go quickly yeah. the opposite.
1: Way, yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah. The other, I mean, I think is that part of what Howard Thurman's grandmother is saying that there th- is there possible not a connection that she wants to make because of the link to how um, you know slave masters used Paul. Is that right. part of it?
2: Yeah, and so I think for um, Howard Thurman's grandmother, you see this. Horrendous use of Paul exactly to justify what's happening to her mm-hmm. and then you have um other African American interpreters who actually, in their own way, push against that use of Paul right and yeah. say, like I'm thinking of, for example, um lemuel haynes who mm-hmm. who says Paul doesn't justify slavery. actually, when you read first corinthians seven twenty one Paul is saying, if you can get your freedom, attain it. And and he also talks about how just because slavery existed in Paul's day, it doesn't mean that it's right. In every generation, you have people who go against what God has um, called for and ordained. So you have these in- interpreters who um, gravitate toward Paul and hold on to him. But then you have others like Howard Thurman's grandmother who reject Paul. So it's a, a very interesting relationship that you see um, that these interpreters develop with him on different levels. In different levels. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. As we're on the topic, I'm wondering about some of the women, the Black women interpreters um, that talked and, and shared their, their voices through your work here. Can you talk about some that really, and there's so many, that really mm-hmm. made an impact on um, on, on your work? some that just stand out. And I know there's so
2: many. Yeah. They, I mean, yeah, I think that was one of the treasures for me in doing this research uncovering or recovering some of the voices of these women um, who were so powerful in their own right. um, Because many of them, you know, they not only face discrimination because of their race, but also because of their gender. And they, Um, were called to preach and proclaim the gospel. And they faced a lot of pushback um, from society at large, but also from the church.
0: Mm -hmm. And so when
2: you read their autobiographies, you just get uh, just a glimpse of how powerful they were and how they refused to be stopped. (laughs) No matter what, they would not be stopped. And so people like Jarena Lee, Julia Foote, um, Harriet Jacobs, Um, Maria Stewart, Zilfra Elah, all of them, I think, made an impact on me as I was reading their stories. Um, And the fact that many of them used or employed Paul's letters to argue for their right to preach. When the church and other people were using Paul's words to silence women, Mm -hmm. they would come back and say, wait a minute. Um, I'm thinking of Zilpha Elah in particular, but all of them do this in some sense. But Zilpha talks about if you look at this historical context in which Paul is writing, you see that there are women, he says, who are laboring with him in the gospel. And so if you look at the historical context, women are preaching, they are prophesying, they are in ministry. Mm -hmm. And so you can't take what Paul says in one particular place and she talks about in that particular place in Corinthians, he's addressing a particular congregation. You can't take that passage and use it to justify silencing women for all time in all places. So um, these women were really remarkable in the way they understood scripture and the way they understood the historical context of scripture and how they were able to marshal scripture to support their own call to ministry, even in the face of excommunication from their church. Yeah, it's just just really remarkable women. It is. It is. Let's yeah. focus then
1: on um Harriet Jacobs was one of the stories that stood out for me. Um and you talked about her really some of these stories are beyond what is yeah. probably possible to imagine. But yeah. um and and her story and her um, use of the, the one blood doctrine. Can you just talk about Jacobs and how she uses this doctrine? I know um, you know, I'm encouraging people to, if they haven't already read the book, to read the book just to get into the sort of the granular detail, but can you give us some idea of Harriet Jacobs' story?
2: Yeah. So Harriet Jacobs um, is a phenomenal woman on several levels. First, Um, she is the first African-American woman to write her autobiography. Um, You have other women before her who dictate their autobiographies, but she is the first one to write her autobiography. And her story um, is published on the eve of the Civil War. And one of the reasons why she writes her story is so that people can see and understand what is happening to African-American women Mm -hmm. in slavery. That they are being sexually abused. They are being raped. And she wants her story to be known so that, she says in the opening part of the book, so that the women of the North, the people in the North Mm
0: -hmm. can
2: understand the great evils that are happening in the South. And so her story is phenomenal because first of all, she is very candid and she's very um, forthright in what's happening to her, in her life and what's happening in other African-American women's lives during this time. And she opens herself up to, opens her story up, which is a very painful story. But one of the things she does in her um, narrative Um, which is so powerful. I mean, there's so many powerful elements to her story. Mm -hmm. But one of the things she does is she shines a a bright light on African-American women being raped by their enslavers. Um, And so one of the passages that she uses to critique what's happening to her and other Black women is Acts 17 mm-hmm. And this is where Paul says in, in, um, in Acts, God has made of one blood, all the nations of the earth. So that passage is being used by other African Americans and, you know, before her and even after her in a positive way to talk about the unity of humanity. And because humanity is one, they do not, there's no race superior to the other. Well, Jacobs, in her ingenious move, she cites this passage, but she cites it to critique what's happening Mm -hmm. to African-American women. And she calls it a libel upon the heavenly father, what's happening. Mm -hmm. So God has already made humanity of one blood. But what is happening to African-American women is that when white men are raping black women, they are um, in a sense perverting this passage. They are making one blood of humanity, but in a way that goes against um, what God has called for. God does not call for the raping of black women. Um, So she, she uses that scripture to critique what's happening to um, African-American women. And it's a really ingenious move mm-hmm. um, because she says, this is, this is a libel upon the Heavenly Father. Um, what's happening is not right. And she's making a call for, um, for people to recognize what's happening and put a stop to it and put an end to it.
1: I'm going to change gears and get you to give us um, the definition of African-American hermeneutics. And if you can define it in relationship to Black theology, like how are they different? How do they build on one another? Do they build on one another? And in what ways?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I would say, so one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to lift up African-American hermeneutics, um, but African-American hermeneutics as it relates to Paul. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to do is give a glimpse, if you will, of how African-Americans from the 1700s to the mid-20th century, how have they interpreted Paul and his letters? And I think one of the things um, that comes about from this research is that They're often interpreting Paul in a way that counters the way many white interpreters of their time Mm -hmm. were interpreting him. Mm -hmm. So they're offering different understandings of Paul and his letters, different understandings of really what the gospel is. And but one of the themes that you see, I think, coming back again and again is this theme of God as a liberator in Christ. God is a liberator of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I think it very much converges with what Black theology is about. God is a liberator of the oppressed, right? Um, And so you see that theme, I think, repeatedly in these interpreters, but in different ways. Um, And Mm -hmm. for them, the gospel that Paul proclaims is a gospel of liberation, which is one of the ways they gravitate toward toward his writings because they see him as a figure of liberation. So I think, that's, I think that emphasis on God as a liberator in Christ is um, one of the ways that these interpreters, um, how their writings really merge with Black theology that we you know, tend to think of beginning in the 60s and 70s. But I think these interpreters foreshadow or anticipate the later Black theology movement in the sense that they were doing and writing about they were doing writing and writing about black theology early on. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the um, interpreters, Lemuel Haynes, we talked a little bit about one of yeah historian calls him a founding father of black theology. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I think I think you you'll see see a number of similarities between black theology of sixties and seventies and now and what happened earlier on Mm -hmm. that's yeah yeah Yeah. and that overlap that happens yeah yeah yeah
1: Dr. Bones, one of the things that you ask in the book is a body hermeneutic. You ask about a body hermeneutic and you ask can my black body interpret Paul and can Paul interpret my black body? And I think again these are large questions, right? And but did you yeah. begin? Yeah, I know. I know. And it's fascinating. I mean, I mean, this book is fascinating. But did you find or the find the answers or the beginning of some answers to that to that really large
2: question? Yeah, I would say beginning Mm -hmm. of answers. Yeah. Um, But I think these interpreters kind of offer, they kind of offer a multitude of answers. Yes. Um, So, yeah, so, and that's one of the reasons why I I try to lay out in each chapter like the historical context so that readers could see what's happening as these interpreters are interpreting scripture, like Mm -hmm. what's happening in the larger society, what's happening in the nation, And what gives rise in a sense to this body hermeneutic? Like, why is it that um, that question has to be asked? It has to be asked because black bodies are being devalued and dehumanized. And so this question of can Paul interpret my body and can my body interpret Paul becomes a really important question in light of the context, because Black bodies are constantly being assaulted. And so I think when you read these interpreters, you see that their answers that they give in these writings, for the most part, their answer is yes. I mean, you do have, I do talk in the book about a couple of interpreters who Mm -hmm. say, Paul can't understand my body, you know, (laughs) Plague and Thurman. But for the most part, um, these interpreters say, yes, um, he can. And they and they answer that question in a variety of ways. Some of them use the language of um, Paul's language of the spirit, um, the spirit of adoption. Their bodies have been adopted by God. They are now children of God. Um, you also have this understanding of the body as um, sacred, which Mm -hmm. comes out of this baptismal language that Paul uses. Um, You also have this sense of uh, agency, bodily agency, that they use Paul's letters to talk Mm -hmm. about being able to um, use their body, not only just to protest and resist, but also in the spiritual transformation of their bodies as well. So this body hermeneutic question, I think these interpreters answer in a variety of ways. Um, another way you see it talked about is that the body is being oppressed from the outside. of this understanding of the body um, being oppressed by a system by structures that are outside of itself, and that's important in light of the you know the prevalent understanding of that time in which. The black body itself was seen as evil, and you have these interpreters saying, "Nope, it's not our bodies that are evil; it is the system, it is the structures that are oppressing mm-hmm. us and um, afflicting us." So they answer this question, I think, in a variety a variety of ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for you personally, any definitive understanding or relationship to Paul once the, now that the book is complete, like. Any gleanings from your own life and work?
2: Hmm, That's a huge question.
1: (laughs) It is. I know they're all such... We could talk about any of these questions for an hour.
2: (laughs) It is. It is. Well, I think... I mean, I definitely want to do more work in this area. But I think one of the things that struck me... um, I keep going back to these mystical experiences. (laughs) Because I think one can get caught up in reading these experiences and saying, oh yeah, this, these were nice experiences that happened. But I think when you see the context in which they happened and you think about these um, bodies that were so dehumanized and tortured and when, when they talk about how these experiences affected their bodies, Yeah. Like they say, I look at my hands and my hands look new. Mm. I look at my feet and my feet look new. I look at my body. I mean, I think when you hear, when you see them talking about how their bodies are changed and transformed because of these experiences, I think it gives, at least it gives me a deeper appreciation for what these divine encounters meant for them. Like, it wasn't just um, a feel-good type of moment. It was a real transformation of how they saw themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, my body matters. And I can say my body matters because it matters to God. Mm-hmm. And look at how God has touched my body. And I can see myself as new I can say I'm a chosen vessel by God. I can go forth and proclaim what God has called me to proclaim. And I I think when you read their experiences, it just gives, at least for me, a deeper appreciation to the power of God Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um, and how God was at work in their lives, even in the midst of really um, horrific circumstances.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it well, it gives me goosebumps because the the language of our bodies mattering and our lives mattering feel like we could be talking about twenty twenty one, and and we yeah. are, and it yes. translates. The 2021. Mm-hmm. And it also gets me to a question that I was going to ask you, Dr. Bowens, about modern interpreters. I know you had to end the book at some place. And yeah. so, you know, it's sort of, um, we, we start thinking about Dr. King and we, you know, start thinking about the mid 20th century. And I wonder like for like, even in the last decade or two modern interpreters that you're thinking about are reading and then the context of this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of the moment that we are currently in, you know, Paul and some of these interpreters, and I'm sure new interpreters have something to say. And so, who mm-hmm. are some of those new ones that you're following or, or modern interpreters that you're following or thinking about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, one of the interpreters I'm really excited about, and I actually had him as a guest in one of my classes this term. Mm-hmm is Esau McCulley and his book Reading While Black. Yes, Um, yes, And the way he talks about Romans 13, as it relates to a New Testament theology of policing, I think is so amazing. And I think he's doing now what these interpreters were doing in their own context. Like they were showing how Paul was relevant for their context and um, speaking out against racism and white supremacy. And the thing about these interpreters too, is that many times they were relating the historical context of scripture to their context. And that's what I think Esau does in in the way he's talking about Romans 13 and policing and how soldiers during that time often perform the duties of policing, of police that we see today. Mm -hmm. And so I think he is, I think he's one of the um, interpreters who's kind of picked up the mantle, if you will, and talking about how Pauline scripture relates to what is happening in our own context and time. So, yeah, I'm very excited about his work and, yeah, actually use it in my classes because I see that trajectory continuing and what he's doing. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. Another interpreter is Dennis Edwards. His book is called Might from the Margins, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Might from the Margins, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and he has several chapters in there where he talks about, I mean, he's looking at scripture overall, so not just Paul, but there. uh, there's a couple of places there where he does talk about Paul. In one particular passage, he talks about the power of anger and how anger can be used positively for justice. And he gives this episode from Paul's life in which Paul is angry and, and and cries out against the injustice that he endures. So I think he's also another interpreter who's kind of picking up where these interpreters have left off mm-hmm. and talking about um and using Pauline scripture to relate to what is happening in our own context in terms of injustice to African Americans. Um, so, yeah, I think those two I would lift up as people who are caring Absolutely. for the the mantle. yeah you know. that's wonderful.
1: I'm Also curious what you want readers to glean from this work. And I think you know us in the distillery in this our department so well it it will be lots of different types of people that listen to this. Clergy, Mm. mid-career, early seminarians, students, people who are are interested in Bible and religion. And what do you hope people get from this book?
2: Yeah, so I hope my hope is a couple of things. Well, a few things, actually. One of the things I hope is that this book opens a conversation or continues a conversation about the relationship between christianity racism scripture and white supremacy because i think the church and i mean the church more broadly there's a history that we have to reckon with and i my hope is that this book will allow a deeper understanding of how deep the wounds are, um, and how deep the church has been involved in um, facilitating racism. So that's one of my hopes. I hope it will help us to have an a honest conversation about this and not just try to pretend like, oh, it really wasn't all that bad. But I hope uh, it allows us to have a real, honest, deep conversation about our history. And then I also hope that part of it too would be, it would help us in having that honest, hard conversation, because it is a hard conversation to have, um, Mm -hmm. that we will, in some ways, be able to see how to move forward. Like, how do we Now that we know this history and we're Mm -hmm. having these hard conversations, how do we move forward? How do we go forward? The other thing I hope that readers will get is I hope they will get inspired because even though these stories are, you know, they are painful to read and um, Mm -hmm. they are hard but they're also inspiring because you see how these interpreters in the midst of such odds hold to their faith in God. They refuse to give up. They refuse to be deterred. They are so strong and so courageous in the midst of everything they face and so I hope that people will be inspired by that. Like even in this moment in which we live, when it seems like there are so many obstacles, there are so many challenges, how in the world will we get through this? I'm hoping that we can hear these interpreters' voices and say, and I think you know, I think about Hebrews 11, these crowd of cloud of witnesses, right? That they are, they are in our corner. Like they're pulling for us. <laughs> We did it in mm-hmm. our generation. We we struggled. We protested. We resisted. And now we're pulling for you. And so, mm-hmm. I hope that people will get inspired by their stories and and hear it as um, hear their voices as cheerleaders, as um, people who have left us a very rich legacy. That we have to continue. Mm-hmm. We we have to. We need to. We must continue. Their um, yeah, their struggle, their fight. I was inspired doing the research myself, and so I hope that people will be inspired as well in reading their stories and their their journey because I mean their journey, they're a part of us, we're a part of them. We are part of the same people of God, and so I hope that mm-hmm. readers will take that away.
1: Yeah, they're pulling for us just I feel yeah, that so deep. deeply. It's so true. It's so it's true. true. It's so true. And I know, you know, working with students and young people and, you know, the gift of knowing that they're pulling for us is just so I feel that so deeply. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
2: I'm working on a few projects. One, um, I'm actually a co-editor of an upcoming volume with Dennis Edwards on um, called Do Black Lives Matter? How mm-hmm. Christian Scriptures Speak to Black Empowerment. And so it's a collection of essays from African-American scholars um, in different areas. Um, so um, prayerfully, hopefully that will be out um, within the next year or so. Working on another book with Scott McKnight and Joseph Modica on preaching Romans from here, in which we are um, having um, different um groups talk about how to preach Romans from their context. So Native American, Asian American, African American, um, different contexts. How do you preach Romans? So we have essays and we'll have sermons um, in that volume. And then I'm working on a couple of commentaries, one on 1st, 2nd Thessalonians and the other on 2nd Corinthians.
1: Thank you for this conversation and, and just for just really this, this tremendous work. Book. Um so thank you very much. Gift, and this is such a pleasure. And we're so lucky to have you at Princeton Seminary.
0: Thank you, thank you. You've been listening to the Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sushama Austin Connor. And I'm Sherry Ousting.
2: I'm Omar Peterman and I am in charge of production.
0: Like what you're hearing? Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.